Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Except today, because today is a very special supplemental episode. Two warnings, this podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things weren't not so nice words. Also, spoiler warning, we will be talking about the endings of both movies, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get to it. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Today, we will be discussing Fahrenheit 451, the 2018 American dystopian drama film that was directed and co-written by Ramin Bahrani, based on the 1953 book of the same name by Ray Bradbury. This is the movie that stars Michael B. Jordan and came out in, like I said, 2018 on HBO. We will be comparing and contrasting it a bit with the 1966 movie, which we already discussed, as well as the book, which we already discussed in our regular episode. You're listening to this very special supplemental episode because you are a patron or supporter of our show. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, patrons. We love you. Let's get to Fahrenheit 451. Okay, here's my synopsis. In the future, after a second civil war, most reading in America is confined to the internet called The Nine, which is mostly a feed of happier, angrier, or fire emojis. Most books are banned, except for greatly simplified versions of books such as The Bible, To the Lighthouse, Moby Dick, and by simplified I mean mostly replaced with little pictograms, emojis. Books are ordered to be burned by the firemen, who are part of the Ministry, a totalitarian dictatorship that blames unhappiness, mental illness, and conflicting opinions on reading the wrong literature. In this world, we have Guy Montag, a firefighter. He's pretty awesome. He loves his job, and he's good at it. This world is broken into the natives versus the eels. The eels are the readers of graffiti, aka books, and punishment for having books at all is to have your identity burnt away via burning your fingertips. Of course, there's an underground and CIs who narc on each other. And this is how we meet Clarice. She's an informant underground eel who gives beady info as a way of working off her time as an eel. And yes, there are wall-sized TV screens and TV screens that take up the whole walls and sides of buildings and burning books and punishing the eels is live-streamed and very performative. And your hero in mind, Master Trooper Montag, is being super gung-ho and really hamming it up for the cameras. Montag goes about his work without question, believing that by following in his captain's footsteps, Captain Beatty that is, he is serving and protecting society. Beatty is a father figure and mentor to Montag, who has regular flashbacks to his own father, a former firefighter who turned eel. There is no hound, by the way, but there is Yenixa, who is like Alexa, but with cameras that are always on you and monitoring your vitals. Beatty sometimes has her go dark so he can write out his thoughts or quotes on scraps of paper and then burn them. Beatty holds multitudes. And then, on a tip they get from Clarice about a house full of graffiti in a dead zone, they find an old lady surrounded by hundreds of books. Beatty rails against literature, reminds Montag that people aren't born equal, they must become that way through fire. He points out how minorities don't like the language in Huck Finn, and then other minorities didn't like the writing in Native Son. 
When he isn't looking, Montag steals Native Son. The old lady offs to burn herself and die with the books, which horrifies Montauk. Right before she dies, she says the word omnius. But of course, when the media shows the footage later, she's been badly dubbed to say coward, because the higher-ups don't know what omnibus means, and they are therefore afraid of it. Also, right as she dies, she says a very famous quote. Beatty is dismissive of her death and martyrdom. He says her quote was from a time when people believed in gods and went to war over books. More on this later. In a show of masculinity and bravado, he has Montag burn his hand and says when Montag was becomes more like him, he won't feel it when they burn him. Foreshadowing? At home, Montag reads his book. Two plus two is four. Sometimes two plus two is five. Could it be? At his own home, Beatty burns more scraps of paper. Montag then goes looking for Clarice and gives her the book. She explains how the ministry came to be, how people wanted it, how the people did this to themselves. She alludes to his use of the medically prescribed drops that affect his memory. Together, they play a harmonica, read a book, snuggle, kiss. Maybe more. It's slightly unclear. Back at the firehouse, Beatty is inspiring the troops. The higher-ups have now know what Omnibus is. All of the knowledge of the world, somehow uploaded into a tiny bit of DNA that can be anywhere, but if released into the general public, will mean doom for everyone. Or, as Beatty so poetically puts it, the dark countries will take over. So it's time for some big-time raids. Lots of things and people being burnt, lots of eels being harassed, mass panic, etc. During a raid, Montag lets Clarice go, and then later tries to hide a father-daughter eels combo, but Beatty discovers his treason. Montag tries to resign, but Beatty, who has just put him in for a promotion, refuses his resignation, tells him to go home, rest, and return with his head screwed on straight. And then, of course, he has Montag followed by firefighter Douglas. Douglas sees Montag get into a car with Clarice, and tattles promptly. Clarice takes Montag to the book people, aka the eels who memorize books. In order to prove that he is one of them, they tell him he must kill a firefighter that they have prisoner. He totally psychs himself up to do this task, but the last second is revealed, it was only a test. Now they trust him, and they confirm the DNA ominous thing and tell him that it's a bird that needs to be smuggled to Canada with a transponder so that Canadian scientists can capture it and then introduce the info into other animals, and then that will somehow repopulate the world with animals holding the key to humanity or something. At this point, it stopped making sense. Montag returns to the city with brass balls, walks right into the firehouse, and steals a transponder. Beatty catches him and rails at him, makes him read aloud from a book while it is being burnt, and then challenges him. Montag acts like he's fully on board with the fire. Fire! Roo rah Let's burn shit! And let's go get some eels! Rah rah rah! Off they go. But oh my god, they're at Montag's house. There are books all over Montag's home. No one believes him when he says they aren't his. They've been implanted. Beatty gives him the flame gun, and Montag burns the books, and then his home, including a screen showing his face in real time for all the foaming masses. Outside, his fingerprints are burnt off, and then Montag, tired of Beatty's constant nagging, grabs the flame gun back and lights Douglas on fire before turning it on to Beatty. But he can't bring himself to burn his father figure, so he runs away instead. There is a very short chase scene of the internet being alerted of his running, and then he is safe with the underground and Clarice again, heading back to the book people headquarters. But oh no, Beatty is following, and now Montauk has led them right to the HQ. Everything is burning. Some of the book people have managed to escape into the woods, but the barn with the bird is on fire, and Montauk runs in, followed by Beatty. Montauk has time to affix the transponder to the bird, and then Beatty has him in his flame gun sights. They make eye contact, and a very calm Montag releases the bird. Beatty knows it is ominous. He either can't fire quickly enough or he lets the bird go. The internet is split on this. And then with a primal scream, he burns Montag to death. 
Vontag dies calmly, one surmises that he doesn't feel the flames. And somewhere, over forests and lakes, the bird flies, eventually meeting up with a whole other flock of birds. So, optimism, I guess. The end. So, tell me how you really felt. Dude, I wanted to like this movie so much. <laughs> and the preview looked cool. And some of the changes they made were, like, awesome. And I was very excited. And, like, the first third of the movie, I was like, yeah, okay, okay. And then the second third... It's done at night, so it's got the more true to the novel ominous feel it's all like very dark. dark yeah they filmed the whole thing at night instead of the daytime like the other movie so i really like that fire looks so cool at night right obviously it's mesmerizing like there's a i mean i have a whole list but then two-thirds of the way through the movie i was like oh we're going in a weird way and i this is what what and then the last third i was like okay i just need this to end now <laughs> And then, and you know my opinion on birds. Birds are fucking little evil, creepy dinosaur, half-bred things, and I hate them. Birds are evil, and a bird is fucking going to save the humanity. I, this movie was destined for me to... No. I like birds. I just think the metaphor is completely mangled in this. Fly free technology. No. Fly free education. No. I... Dude. So many thoughts. <sighs> Okay, so I liked it being filmed at night. I thought his room, because they talk about the wall TV, and there's that one scene where there's this ocean roiling around, and he's listening to classical music, and I'm like, fuck, I want that. That would be just so cool to just chill at the end of your day and have your serene moment and relax and have like these beautiful ocean waves. It's like, I, I could totally dig this. But the plot was really clunky. I didn't like what they did with Clarice, and it became a trash fire at the end. Let's go through with their themes that they were trying here. So their technology. We have some new new bits of tech. And I, I feel like they were trying really hard to like elevate this to a modern day because the things that are futuristic now are different than things that were futuristic in the 60s and the 50s. And so some of them I thought it was like a good idea. It just wasn't executed well. Like the drops are silly. That's been in a lot of sci-fi. But anytime you have people who have to do it to themselves, whether it's drops here or supplements and Buffy the Vampire Slayer or whatever it is it's you have human people are bad I have to take eye drops so I don't go blind and I have to set timers I don't want to go blind Jennifer but like it's still hard to remember to take them all and space them all and do them all do you know what I mean like I get you yeah I have somebody in my home who takes like medicine five times a day and yeah it's a lot you have to set those timers and depending on what your illness is I knew someone who had lupus and she had to have her timer set off right now is when you take your medicine I get that yeah for sure so relying on people to self-medicate themselves so that their memory is warped so that then they're docile little sheep is just a stupid concept but like you said the nine the internet being like all emojis and the, the simplicity of that totally I thought was in the spirit of what Bradbury was talking about with this you know the thing is it's in the spirit of what Bradbury was talking about it seems a lot more 1984 when you have the simplified language but as a linguist you know I look at it in a very different way of well this is evolution of language it's not necessarily diminishment unless you're getting rid of all this other stuff as well do you want to speak more to that you're, I feel like you're talking about emojis and late speak right now um, okay, so as a linguist, 
because there there's two parts of me there's the english major part of me that wants to get on everyone's case about did you use good or well in that sentence and then there's the linguistics part of me that looks at language as evolving forms and there's no prestige attached to something so if you use a happy emoji instead of saying okay that's cool that's absolutely fine. You're being economical with your language. Not everything has to be this huge novel that you're writing when you just want to give a thumbs up on your phone app. So when I see that, there's the linguist part of me that goes, huh, this is a new form of communication. I wonder how they would talk about complex ideas because that's human nature. You have complicated ideas. If it's 1984, it's specifically getting rid of those ideas. So you're getting rid of the language that would help people formulate ideas, or is this an evolving form of language that just is more economical? So the linguist part of me likes the emojis. I feel like you have given this more thought than the screenwriters. (laughs) (laughs) Because what I felt like, okay, I think the idea was that it was all simplified and people just want easy answers, right? There was even the part in the movie where they talked about people only reading the headlines. So what was the point of writing news articles anymore, etc., which again, is very common even today. And so there is an element of simplified language, but there's an element of simplified thought that kind of goes hand in hand with that. And so yes, we, we as humans do do complicated thought, but sometimes we don't. And yeah, sometimes you just need the thumbs up emoji. Right. And but if that's your only specific- tool, if you're only, let's say, allowed to use 27 emojis and no other words, like that can be very limited, right, to what you can and can't express. It it seems like something that's picking on millennials again, Aww. which I get really tired of. I'm fine. I like millennials for the most part uh, as a general concept. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And it's lazy writing, I will, I will say. But I thought that the idea they're saying, okay, so obviously we have to acknowledge that social media is a thing because we're making this movie in 2018. We're not making this movie before social media. So social media is a thing. So in our world of social media, now we're setting this movie in our future. So at some point there was overlap of history, right? So it made sense to me that social media was represented. Maybe it's not the way I would have represented it in the movie. And I think like what you just said, they probably didn't give it as much thought. They're like, oh, bunch of emojis. Emojis are bad. People don't like emojis. So let's pop them here. And then we'll show, it's like an easy shorthand to show that people aren't thinking through complicated thoughts. But the thing is, and again, this is my linguist side as I'm watching the film going, emojis are really fantastic and there's a reason why they're used in text language is because it's hard to show nuance and emotion in a text you know there are times when you're saying something jokey but it may sound mean unless you put the little smile on it right and the whole conversation people were just having about the period at the end if you say okay with no period versus you say okay with the period at the end and how the period is seen as rude or angry or final and (laughs) (laughs) serious okay yeah so that's like there's a reason why we have emojis is because it's filling a hole in the language that needed to be patched specifically when it comes to text sure sure i appreciate that they were trying to use social media and make it the nine and make it this this scrolling things because i don't know how many live videos you watch when say the governor or the president or somebody's out in front of some bank of cameras and they're giving a press release and they're talking about things and the entire bottom of the screen is just rolling 
thumbs up hearts and angry faces over and over and over and over and over again. And there's not even any comments or discussion going on. It's just people's gut reaction to that, you know, and they're just indicating and the governor's not looking at the governor doesn't care. But what it is, is indicating it's very performative to everybody else watching that you've hit the heart button 17 times in a row or whatever. And so that was a direct parallel. Like I, I, and I had just watched a press conference probably right before I watched this movie. I was like, oh my God, it's the same exact thing. And it is very performative and all of this stuff on the nine and the big screens and the vlogger who's out there, you know, interviewing the firemen. It just, it was very performative. And I thought, okay, I see what they were going for. Like you, I don't think they quite hit it, but I, you know, I'm going to give them a couple of, couple of points. I'm going to give them a, a thumbs up emoji for trying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so just as a little side thing, my favorite synopsis, like extremely short synopsis of a novel is from Dante's Inferno. And the synopsis is Dante is put through hell by a woman. There you go. Technically correct. Completely misses the point. Yes. So sometimes we need more than, you know, seven words for something. Okay. So then we also have in other forms of, of technology, we have Yuxi, which was Again, I thought, okay, so they're looking at what we have today. Today we have the robot who I won't say her name because I have one sitting next to me and it'll wake her up. Anyways, and so what's the next step for her, right? Because that's really what science fiction does, right? It takes something and it takes it to the, like an extreme version, blah, blah, blah. So it's not just listening to you all the time. It also responds you know, to you, but then it also has the capability to record you and it has the capabilities for cameras and then it's tied directly into the internet so like other people can see it too and scary stuff we kind of already have a lot of that she doesn't have a camera in her yet 2020 i'm knocking on wood what do you think 2021 2022 at what point are there going to be cameras in these echo dots right hmm i'm giving it five years Plus, there's already portals portals have the the camera in them already and you talk to them and they open up facebook and then you can chat with people and stuff and you can have you can say okay google and then google like turns on and there's cameras on your phone so we're not I well to a certain extent i mean you, you do have to make accommodations for people who are deaf oh for sure and so yeah, that's one of the reasons I go, uh, I, I don't necessarily disagree with having this technology or see it as an all I'm evil I'm not thing. saying it's all evil. I'm saying we're way closer than five years to it being much more all over the place. And so the Uxy thing was fine. It didn't bother me at all. I thought it was like a nice touch. Um, I love that it was like, go dark. And then they didn't realize that, oh, well, when we're dark, I'm just you and me. You know, it's not your, the illusion of privacy, I thought was very interesting and prescient today. And not only that, you're never really off. Yeah, you're never really unplugged from the ministry or whatever else. The wall screens, like you said, super cool. The VR tech, I, I don't know what, because the, all these people had like little VR helmets on at one point, but I don't, we didn't really see what they were doing, but VR is a thing that we have now. The main technology that was super annoying and problematic for me and took me out of the movie was the DNA sequencing. Yeah, so it's a simple, instead of having the book kind of being part of your memory and it, it's, it's mangled. I, I see what they're trying to do, but they don't do it effectively. Okay, so... You're smarter than I am. Please explain this to me. So the idea was we, we could all this knowledge shrink it down, which, okay. And then we inject it into an animal. Okay. And then that animal now mates with another animal and passes that DNA gene on so that at some point, if we catch a bird, 
out of the sky. This is like the thought, if I'm, if I'm correct. You catch a bird, you could then extract that from the bird, and therefore then you would now have all the knowledge. I like the two implications of this, is that we'll get a Mockingjay that just spouts out random quotes from books as this bird evolves. Or you have to eat the bird like a pagan and just gnaw on it to get the DNA in your system in a bit. Yeah, it makes no and sense. And also, like, it makes absolutely birds no don't sense. mate with different kinds of like, that's a starling, I think. Um, the starling's not going to mate with a parrot. So, like, you only have starlings that now have it. But then how many generations? What if that, I mean, how long? So, you know the thing about the starlings, right? Okay, starlings are not native to America. There was this guy, I, I forget exactly who he was. I could probably look it up. But he wanted to have every bird that was ever mentioned in Shakespeare in the U.S., Yes, and so starlings, he brought them over and they died. He brought them over and they died. He brought them over and it's like, okay, this is the last time. They have become a plague in America. Yes. Starlings are super destructive. It's all this one dude going, oh, Shakespeare, which is super ironic to have it be a starling. Yeah, it's an invasive species. Maybe that was the hope. I don't know. Maybe maybe we just really wanted to secretly give Shakespeare a slap across the face because he inspired stupidity. I mean, maybe that's just me, but it is, it's like the rabbits in Australia. I, I remember the story now. So, okay. I just, okay. Thank you for explaining that. It, I totally got what they were saying, but it doesn't make any actual sense. So. Agreed. Did you have anything else about technology? Oh, no hound. Thank goodness. I still, I just think that that, the existence of the mechanical hound needs to stay in the book. I feel like anytime they would have tried, it just would have not worked. I could see it working and looking really cool, especially kind of one of those where you can kind of see the gears moving and have it be really sleek. It's just, it's, it's one of those effects that you have to do really well, or it's going to look dated super fast. Yeah. And so that's the problem. Um, if they CG'd it, it's like, oh, there's the CG effect going across. There's no danger. There's no nothing. It just looks lame. Mm -hmm. One thing. So with this film as a whole, it felt like it either should have gone big blockbuster, you know, make it make a statement, just go for it and do the big thing and have fun or make it cerebral like the book and have, you know, actually continue on with the thoughts and explore them. So it, it suffers from either lazy writing or just kind of low budget expectations. Yeah, I will probably get laughed at for this. But Starship Troopers holds up. <laughs> the effects hold up. And it is, if you look at the film, a very interesting look at fascism. It's a totally fascist film. And so that what's, that's what makes it kind of fun to watch. And it's a popcorn film. So either do that or, you know, do something like um, Moon mm -hmm. or Sphere. Or not. Because the 1966 movie was so awesome. It probably just didn't <laughs> need to be improved upon at all, says me. Okay, so there's a thing that we did not talk about too much in our recap of, of the book and film, but because it becomes a bigger deal here, I thought it would be a good place to talk about it, and that has to do with the racism. Mm. So Bradbury's book is very white. It's a white book. It's a white entitled dude writing about other white entitled people, and they there's no there's no discussion of the the working people. He works as a fireman, but that's a very prestigious job. Their food and everything is just kind of there. Their stores, like his imagining of this future, there did not seem to be anybody of diversity 
of a diverse background. And I don't know if he was trying to say at this point, we're all homogenized and race doesn't matter. I'm not giving Bradbury that credit. I don't think that that was where he was at. It's the same kind of thing where he doesn't think about where, where the food comes from or what happens with this. And it's a very male, white male book, right? It's just not thinking about a lot of the components of the world building and that would affect that was people. one of his sort of curmudgeonly things is he hated having to talk about women and minorities when other people pointed yes. out you know you should probably do a little bit more of that because you're just writing white dude white dude stuff for white dudes right and and so having that be definitely a, a part of the original now they're going to make a 2018 remake. They cast Michael B. Jordan. Who is awesome. He is awesome. Although I don't think he was given enough to do in this particular movie. But he is very awesome. And in order to make it very clear that there's still racism stuff going on in this world, we have a lot of these coded, we have coded language. We have this guy who at one point calls him boy in this very derogatory way. We have this allusion to the dark countries will take over. Beatty goes out of his way to say the N-word um, in definitely a challenging way as if he's going to challenge and see if Montag's actually you know bothered by this word. The book that Montag picks up and reads is Native Son. I mean, it wasn't subtle. And I appreciated that, I that they were trying to, to bring that kind of into focus that racism is definitely a component of this and that but but it is a little complicated because and I don't want to want to read too much into a movie that they didn't read too much into themselves but the idea of institutionalized racism and the people who act within the oppressive system to continue to hold down other people even if they themselves are part of the group that would natural not quite you know not naturally but you know would in the realm of that world be held down I just found it very, very interesting, the casting choice and the choice to actually highlight the racist attitudes that the other people have. And he's the only black firefighter that we see. Yeah, I really like that casting choice just because of that added nuance of, and again, if you know the book and the movie, which our listeners now do, you can understand why that is such an interesting choice. Definitely. And and then we have the ideas of the eels, right? Uh, which again, you so racism is one thing, and then the classism it goes part and parcel to it, right? So we have the eels, and for a while, I, I'm sorry, I guess I'm just not that bright. It took me a minute or two to realize to figure out illegals. Yes, it did. I was like eels, like they're in the water, like what, why eels versus natives? And then it wasn't until they'd said natives a couple times, I was like, okay, so if eels are the co- opposite of natives, what's the opposite of natives would be? like an immigrant oh but it's not an immigrant it's an illegal okay i'm with you movie but <laughs> it took me a second and maybe that's... i i like to give credit for that as being a smart thing that expects you to be a smart watcher and catch stuff like that well yes <clears throat> and you did i did very smart watcher eventually <laughs> but i thought it, it again we get into like the importance of language in a movie that's all about you know, that starts off and has this main theme about simplifying language we just talked about. But the eels, you're basically dehumanizing these people. You're saying they're not human, they're animals. They're even, they're compared to a wild animal because she's mentally ill because she reads books, you know, living off the grid like a wild animal. And that anybody who issues the technology is othered to the point of not even being human. 
And I, so yeah, it might just be a fun little word that connects to illegals, but it's also it has that extra coding on it. Yeah, I thought the changes made to the lead fireman because Beanie, I thought had there were glimpses of a much deeper character. He definitely had more to do. He was a major, major part. Yeah, I, I thought the writing on the cigarette stuff, because he is going to, you know, maybe smoke them. That's what I thought he, they were going to show, is him rolling them up and smoking the words, because it would still be a fireman. But just said he wanted those words written down, even in his own hidden way. <laughs> it's almost like if he had smoked them, he would have ingested them and then let them loose into the world. You could maybe have made a connection to the fucking birds at the end. But no, no, no. Let's just burn them. Yeah, I screen captured all like most of the times when he had something down and wrote them down and, and his, his quotes and his thoughts. And it's very interesting. I He had nuance. And there was this moment, a couple of moments, actually, where I was like, Maybe he's not. Yeah. I was wondering if they were going to change his character at one point and make him much more sympathetic. But as it is, he's more complex, Mm -hmm. which I enjoyed. Yeah, I did too. I liked the fact that he had a bigger part. I liked the fact that Montag didn't have a wife. And which is interesting, they cast somebody to be his wife, and then they ended up cutting it out. (laughs) So like they were going to do that. And I'm very glad for that change. I thought it worked it worked better. It made him more of an everyman, but also like there was already so many other things happening that he didn't need that. Speaking of so many things happening, the plot is really clunky and not well paced. Yes. And speaking of the the change, the lack of a wife obviously changed Clarice a little bit. So I know you have thoughts on Clarice. You want to talk about Clarice? I, okay, so originally Curly, Clarice was the person who brings life. You know, she's the one who sparks ideas. She's the muse, the manic pixie dream girl sort of thing. And I love how they portrayed that in the film, the 1966 film, just because she's still, she's aged up. She's more intellectually capable and more even leveled with uh, Montag. But she still carries that, you know, innocent joy of learning in nature and books. And in this, she's so cynical and it fits the time it's just I, I kind of miss having something of that. It, we kind of lost something in that translation. Yeah. No, I get why they didn't keep her light and airy and, and full of life because it really would have not made sense. It would have been jarring in the film. It was just kind of sad to see. Yeah. I don't like the romance, though. Originally, there was no romance. We were just kind of two people who sort of found each other and enjoyed sort of going on that path together. Well, you know, they had that intellectual journey together and in this one there's the romance which it just seems like a standard thing well we have to have a romance yeah well you get two people in a room together i mean and then you don't have to worry about cheating because he doesn't have a wife right because obviously kalia if there's a man in the room you're going to jump him well yes i am a fickle woman who can't control myself as you know wait wait wait. i'm queer any woman oh no i can't see anybody (laughs) that's why i'm locked in my house that's what quarantine's really about (laughs) yeah so it's just like is it only these two people why why do we always have to have the romance i i yeah, so there's just some toying around with her that I, I I get some of the necessity of it. I don't like everything they did. Yes. It was like a missed opportunity because Beatty and Montag are 
so masculine. This movie's very masculine. They're like, it opens up with them boxing and, and they're just, I'm going to like show off my hand getting burnt and I'm going to do this. And it's so manly, performative bullshit. Uh, you know, uh, the chanting and that group think that cohesion thing is a lot of times you have this in military units, the chanting and the hoorah and the, it not only pumps you up and fills you with adrenaline, but it, it makes you one of many. And there's, there's safety security in that being one of many, but it's also, it's, it's a team building group building exercise. It's very, that's why they do it. So I thought that the, the repetitive chanting of him with the other guys was, was a nice touch. Guys, if you just kissed and got it out of your system. No, no, no. There was a it was a father figure thing. I yeah. don't know. But it, like it would have been really nice if her femininity could have been like the the other part of that. Do you know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. what I did like was that the book people were led by a woman, you know? Like, oh, okay, women leaders. That was that was really nice to see. It felt a little bit more egalitarian. I wish we could have seen more of that they because they had the same thing they're like we're all books but then also we have this other thing and also this one person has memorized everything so it it was why it was a mess it was a mess of everything it's like they were trying to make an omelet and a cake at the same time a little bit more about bd we talked about how he was more complicated as a villain but he wasn't even the main he was like the tool of the main villain the main villain here is the ministry and like you said before it's much more 1984 with the watching you and being super involved and i don't know if that's just because at this point you can't well i guess you can we saw children of men but like it's it's harder it takes more work to make a dystopian future that doesn't have the shorthand easy okay ministry therefore bad, therefore this. Like, oh, okay, because it's it's a almost, I'm not going to say it's a comforting thing, but it's a world we know. We've seen science fiction in the last 30 years, right? So you put slap on the ministry, you put an eye icon on the side of a building, everybody knows where we're at. You don't even have to think about it anymore. It's a little frustrating. So you wanted the shorthand? No, I don't. I mean, I'm saying I they use it as shorthand, and that's frustrating. Okay. I wish that they had given it a little bit more thought and and done it differently done it better so clarice actually does say one of the lines from the novel of we did this to ourselves Mm -hmm. and again it's if they had explored that well why what does that mean i don't like that there's one channel you know one of the things that is a huge distraction for us now is there are maybe 500 news sources everybody's using something different and we don't have an agreed upon reality anymore you know there's so much information it becomes hard to disseminate what's real what isn't real so the one channel thing bothered me like who would watch one channel well if that's the only thing you have and you are on your special drops that make it so that's the only thing you want i suppose yeah you do have to be sort of drugged but again that would be a missed opportunity to comment on the issues that we have today right and again that is very much like the book where there was the one tv channel and the one thing in our ears and and the government was in control of that and pretending like you were interacting but you weren't so that that level of faking faking it out it's hard to even imagine now you know how to go back or how to go into something that's safer because you're right it it seems like these are the ends of the spectrum one channel which may or may not be giving you accurate information 
versus 500 channels, the right and the correct truthful information is probably in there somewhere, but you have to sift through and then you're reading something different than I am and yada, yada, we have a different shame form of reality. Where's the happy medium where we can all at least agree on facts and then interpret them differently? I, I don't even know if we as a... I'm going off. I don't even know if we as a culture can get back to that now because we are so polarized and because technology has made this other thing so invasive and so easy. So I was at a doctor's office earlier this morning and they had that 70s show on, which I never watched. And I'm stuck there because my mom's on my phone. She's playing a little game. And I think to myself, wow, I really don't miss television. I don't watch it almost at all. And this is stupid. What? So... If that was my only channel, I would go fucking crazy. That's what, like, the, all the choices, you know? If you only have one channel, you would have to anesthetize yourself to be able to watch only one thing. Because, again, if there was only one channel, then you might do other things, right? You might read more, or et cetera, like I know you already do, but what if you weren't allowed to read? What if that literally was the only the only thing and we and we've been raised in a in a society where we have so much choice i there's 70 books right there i can pick any of them and read them 500 channels all the streaming blah 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 it's almost analysis paralysis what are we gonna watch what are we gonna watch i don't know i know there's like 17 things i said oh we should watch that sometime and then it's date night the kids still having a sleepover and we look at each other and we go what are we gonna watch uh I don't know. Let's just rewatch The Office because it's easy. <laughs> okay, there's nothing wrong with The Office. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was like one of the last television shows I really remember enjoying. But that's what I mean about having a modern commentary on that. When we're so distracted by all this news, and it is news, and trying to stay focused in the news, we get lost and don't look at what the bigger picture is. You know, when it comes to real choices, do I have a choice in my internet provider? Do I have a choice in my electric company? You know, I can choose 50 types of bread when I go to the store. Great. But when it comes to the big stuff, you know, right now we're getting ready for a presidential election and there's really just two options. Unless you're, you know, sane, in which case yes. there's really only one. <laughs> Not to get political. Okay. Um, let's see here. Yes, the changes. There's flashbacks to Montag's father, which was an interesting little throw-in because um, in both the original book and the original movie, there was no mention of his family at all. I kind of liked that. Did you get it in this movie that he had narked on his dad? Mm, yeah, I got that feeling. Okay, me too. Um so there was like guilt and stuff. I don't know what was causing him to start having the flashbacks to his father, though. They they started before anything else. And so I was wondering if they're trying to make a, a statement about uh, traumatic stuff and guilt stuff will, will surface no matter how many drops you take or how many, you know, rallies you attend, rah, 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 because this was out of sync with the natural order of things that guilt will eat away at you this seemed one of those where the writers didn't think that much about it they're like oh we'll do a flashback because it doesn't really explain a lot of his motivations you know you could say well he did this thing it was traumatic and so he repressed these memories of his father teaching him to read and how he would love reading but like with a lot of the stuff in this film it doesn't really examine it it's just a surface level well here's the thing 
you know, maybe you could think about it like how we use symbols. And, you know, if you're a linguist and you think about these things a lot, how that means something. But that's me bringing a lot more to the movie than the movie's bringing to me. Yep. Okay, I was disappointed in the chase. I was very disappointed in the chase. It was not scary. And he was dumb. He led them right to the headquarters, which was stupid. But also, like, I missed the part where they were like, everybody go outside. And, like, you know, I and with this kind of technology, you could have seen, they could have shown people with their phones or with their things, like, out and about. The little Uxies floating around. Like, forget the flying firemen. Let's have freaking Uxie drones. Drones Seriously, everywhere. Seriously, where are the Uxie drones? Drones would be everywhere. Yeah. So that was that was disappointed. The DNA was obviously very disappointing. And we talked about the the night versus the day and the city being very futuristic. This movie felt very much like a Black Mirror episode that got padded into being a movie and that should have stayed a 40-minute Black Mirror episode. I'm referencing another television show you haven't watched, but okay. Um Okay, so the biggest change is who lives and who dies. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? That's not television, Jennifer. That's Hamilton. <laughs> Educate yourself. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> Anyways, what did you think about that change that he didn't kill Beatty when he had the chance? I I don't know that it really changed a whole lot of how I thought about the film. It was like, oh, well, okay. So they're relying more on this father-son relationship, whereas the old one was, you know, boss and employee. It was a good kind of boss-employee relationship, but it... So there's an added dimension to it, but it didn't really change that much about how I visualized the film or how I interpreted the film. And so like, okay, that's... Because I was so checked out at that point, I will admit. Okay, as soon as B said, when they burn you, you won't feel it, I was like, oh... Montag's gonna die in this version that's how that's gonna go okay so then I was like mentally prepared for that but I was like who's gonna get him obviously Beatty has to get him otherwise it doesn't make poetic sense so then he's gonna obviously not kill Beatty when he has the chance so like okay knew it was gonna happen then it happened and okay first of all poor freaking Douglas dude dude's just trying he reminded me so much of the guy in the first movie who was like another just random firefighter and then the the captain or whoever was like oh i like you let me give you my medallion and the guy was like oh sir you already did because he's just such a nameless like nobody cares about this person anyways so poor douglas but fine kills douglas can't kill Beatty, and i thought okay i know i think i know why he's not killing Beatty. he's not killing Beatty because he's gonna die later because that's blah 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 that's the ending they want to go for but i also think it might have something to do with the fact that that's straight up murder. <laughs> and we don't usually want our heroes <laughs> to commit straight up murder like that and in such a grisly, gross way. Obviously, there's anti-heroes. I'm not saying that, you know, we don't watch shows. I was just going to say, you know, there are some scenes in Game of Thrones where people were pretty happy. Okay, but but that's a bad guy who's we've, we've spent hours and hours or books and books seeing them laying in the ground. BD is not... Like I said before, he's villainous because he works for the ministry, but he has complicated things. He he regrets not being a father. Like, there's more complexity to him. So having him just be straight up murdered, I think, would have changed Montag's character. It would have made him into a killer. He didn't want to be a killer. He didn't want to be violent in that way after he woke up and, like, realized what was going on and all that stuff. So I, I understood 
that change. I thought, okay, I get it. And then to have BD kill him at the end was so tragic. Like BD is, he is kind of a tragic character because you get the sense that this is a guy who's very much trapped. Like he has these thoughts. He has this inclination to write, probably to read. That's where he got some of these quotes. Do you know what I mean? He talked about how firemen are allowed to read certain books and whatever. Um, He's got his higher ups that are like leaning on him. He's got this protege that is now got, I, I, you're not supposed to feel for the bad guy, but I kind of felt for Beatty. And it wasn't that he didn't kill Montag in a fit of, you pissed me off and I'm angry at you or how dare you or blah, blah, blah. He seemed... It was the inevitability it was, of it. And he screamed when he did that. He didn't laugh. Like, I mean, it, it maybe it was sweat. It almost was tears. Like he, this was a big ass thing. And... He didn't kill the fucking bird. That flame gun could have lit that little bird on fire. And it and he didn't do it. And I I choose to believe that he didn't do it on purpose. Like he had to kill Montag. Montag had to die. I you know, especially in that world that they'd set up and the parameters, the mythos of that universe. But he let the bird go. And it it I just yeah, it was just a very it it got it did it did and i would say like maybe they were just like you know it'd be different we don't want our movie to be exactly the same because then nobody will watch it so let's like flip it around maybe that's all they did but i don't know i see some other stuff in there and montag dying you know in in this mirror reflection of the book lady dying and like accepting it and being serene in it and all of this kind of stuff is yeah that's magical realism nobody just lays down and dies when they're getting burnt at the stake people fucking scream because it hurts yeah unless you're a monk who's you know, spent your whole life disciplining yourself to take yeah, it but that's not Montag. That's... can we just yeah or that bird and lady that's... Or not the bird lady or the book and that's lady. what kind of always pulls me out of the scene with uh the woman in, in her house burning herself is like, you're not going to be serene. It's going to hurt. Your hair is going to go up really fast, too. Hair is like one of the first things to burn. It, these is always like the last thing. And so, yeah, my, my realism kind of gets... My retconning for the lady, anyways, is that when she knows that they're coming, because she totally knows that they're coming, right? She's not surprised, is that she is on. She has taken a, a full bottle of Xanax or some of Linda's blue pills or whatever from the movie, and so she's just not feeling any pain. How do you like it when she opened up her jacket and she had books strapped to her instead of, like, bombs? bombs? Yes. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I I, must admit I kind of rolled my eyes because the kerosene on the books on the floor is what's really going to, you know, it doesn't, but sure, it's symbolic, you know, I'm wrapping myself in the truth. I did like the fact that she, she says the same quote that was said in the movie that is said in the book when she's about to die. And the original movie doesn't really acknowledge it. And I can't really remember in the book them acknowledging or really, I think Faber explains what it is to Montag later, but it, it's this interesting idea. Um, the the quote about "we'll light a candle" because she she says it, and that that quote about "we'll light a candle that will cause a spark that blah 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 blah." It's basically like being part of a chain reaction, and it is. It's Montag. It's a turning point in him. And then I thought it was interesting that to explain it, Beatty says, "Back in the time when people believed in gods," and I thought. Are you saying that this is an atheist civilization now? We're like big city atheist people. We don't believe in the supernatural because 
I mean, of course not. We have our, we get rid of all of those books. That's dangerous. We don't want any of that stuff. We're all the same. Oh, interesting. It adds a level. Yeah. It, I don't know. Well, Ray Bradbury did speak a lot about how he writes with love for, you know, people. And so I expect that he has a, a Christian background. Right. But he wasn't writing this movie. <laughs> No, but in the original novel and in the original book, uh, one of the things that Montag reads, like the big thing is that he's read the Bible mm-hmm. and that's the wisdom he brings forth. Right. Which they changed in the 1966 movie and then also here. It's not, the Bible's not a thing. And in the documentary that I watched about the movie, one of them, I watched a few, I really liked the movie, 1966. They talked about how they could not burn the Bible. They were not going to be able to give permission to, to use the Bible in this way. <laughs> and I, who do you even ask permission? Who owns the rights to the Bible? That's a fun little rabbit hole. I don't particularly feel like going down. But... <laughs> I would have I guessed it would go to like uh, movie ratings and what's allowed in film. Yeah. Anyway. So that, but you know, burning the Bible would have been a powerful symbol. I guess part of my issue with the death scene at the end is, again, I'm kind of checked out at that point. It's, you know, clunky writing. It's badly paced. The running scene, it's like, okay, we're jogging. We're jogging, jogging, jogging. And then we get to this bird. The bird is dumb. And it's a pretty scene, but the bird is dumb. And the lady, she ends it with Omnis, and they change it to Coward, and somebody says, well, wait, that doesn't match what her lips say. But Omnis was the bird. It was the everything. It was the DNA thing. And so they're bringing that in, and it, it's a really stupid device. Right. And also, if you're about to die for your morals and your beliefs, why would you drop a breadcrumb to the fascist regime so that they could potentially find out about it? Right? That seems... Why? Would it would it not have made more sense as a freedom fighter or whatever to keep your mouth shut, say your quote about the candle, and then go your your way and not tip off the authorities that there's something afoot? So there is something to be said of, you know, you're taking this too literally. You're poking all the holes in it. You can take things as a metaphor, and the bird is a metaphor. It's just a badly done metaphor because they are trying to make it something based in reality in the film. And that's... I guess why it really doesn't work. You either have to go more fable or more realistic one way or the other. And that's, again, I felt the film should have been, you know, let's go full force and make this kind of a blockbuster thing. You know, let's have some action in there or let's use it as a thoughtful film. Agreed. So we talked a lot about how the book was written in a very specific time and place, right? 1950s, McCarthyism, the rise of television, yada, 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 right? And then the movie too. It's made in the late 60s. Um, we have counterculture. We didn't get into this too much, but I wanted to. We had the, the you know, we have counterculture. We have bucking the system. We have changing, blah, 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 blah. Okay, it's a little time of turmoil and, and what is and isn't acceptable is changing and we're evolving, etc. Progress is happening. We're on our way to the moon. Haven't gotten there yet, but we're, we're headed that way, etc. So this movie in 2018, filmed primarily in 2017, released in 2018, is definitely a product of its time as well. And I think it would have benefited if they had tried to make it less a product of its time. And I totally understand the inclination because we're going to bring politics in. Here it is. When Trump became president, we started to see, and it, it took a little while because things take a while for production, for production, but we started to see protest TV shows, 
We start to see protest songs. We start to see protest movies. We start to see protest books. It's it's always happened, and it, when it's a really big thing, it happens a lot. That's why we have all that cool protest music from the 60s and protest movies in the 70s and all of this stuff, right? Okay, so fighting against and saying what we currently have is wrong and bad, and we're going to imagine something better, or we're going to imagine where this will take us if we keep going down this road, which has always been the job of science fiction anyways. But this movie tries so hard to make it relevant to the Trump regime that it loses its ability to be a touchstone and to age properly. So the best example I can think of is when they inserted the make America safe, blah, 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 again. Like they, they take the America great again quote, the slogan, campaign slogan, and then they tweak it a little bit so that everyone watching it knows what they're actually referencing, but we've made it more clunky because we're shoehorning it into this, and it doesn't need to be in this. I think the story of Fahrenheit 451 is enough of a protest against all sorts of things. It doesn't need these added elements to be like, hey, look at us. We're aware of what's happening in our society as we're making this movie. Does that make sense? So I like that you brought that point up because I felt much the same way. In, when you want a film to age gracefully, you don't put in what's a lot of current culture. I would like having comment on the culture. So, you know, the way we get our news now and how it's so overblown. That seems relevant to almost any time you would be in. We've always had like multiple news sources, papers, and stuff uh, varies to whatever your predilection is, whatever your prejudices are. So yeah, in 40 years, nobody's going to watch this film. It's one of those things that doesn't age well. There's kind of this weird point where what is in recent cultural memory doesn't get put into history books. It's not widely known when you have another generation coming in. Uh, I have a school teacher who her students just discovered Wayne's World. And it's like a 20-year-old film. But for them, it's like, oh my god, I discovered Wayne's World. The way our generation might have discovered Porky's because that was the film like 10 years of our, ahead of our time. So it gets dated in these ways. Gross. <laughs> it was. I'm I'm resisting Star Trek and you bring up Porky's. Blah. It's not on brand, well, Jennifer. So, okay, to go to Star Trek... You know, when I watched the classic Star Trek, there was a lot of stuff I didn't get because I wasn't at that cultural time. It was before my time. And so why is Uhura such a big, huge deal? She's just another person. And then I found out from my friend who was living in Mississippi, they didn't show Star Trek until after the show had completely finished because there was a black woman on the show. You know, yeah. So stuff like that, like the cultural part, you, you have to figure out what's going on and that cannot always be easy right and sometimes that makes it so that it doesn't age well like i will tell you that we have just recently rewatched all of the original series of star trek with our child and there's a lot of stuff we have to be like okay so the reason why they're doing this this and this is because at the time it was made there's this this and this and therefore they're making a point about this this and this and she's like okay 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 and poor kid we're like taking away all the fun of watching a television show but you know, otherwise it's kind of like you don't get it. And some of them, some of those episodes, if you don't understand the cultural relevance, then it's just stupid. And I, I think that that is, it, you know what I mean? It, it If you grow up and you know the cultural, if you grow up and it has a special place in your heart or you grow up and you know the cultural relevance, you can see it as amazing television because it is. But if you are lacking the cultural relevance and you 
if you're lacking the cultural relevance and you come to it much later and you're used to the television the way it's made now, then it's not going to look right. It's going to look weird and be hard to get into and get invested in. And I just, but then there are episodes where you don't need to know the cultural relevance. The let that be your last battlefield episode is all about racism and you don't have to give um, a preamble. There's no prologue necessary. You watch the show. It totally holds up because that's so relevant now. And it's so, I mean, it's definitely a bonk bonk on the head. Hey, Timmy, don't eat paint kind of an episode, right? Like this is bad. So it works. It it just, and this, like you said, this movie, no one's going to watch again. Um, I, a lot, a lot of people watched it now, because, <laughs> which is kind of unfortunate. I think people should watch things before they decide that they're bad, but yeah, man, it wasn't, it, it didn't do, it didn't do justice to the book. And it was a very poor adaptation. And really everybody just should watch the 1966 movie because it was so good. Okay. Last thing I promise. One of the quote things that I have that I'll put in our show notes. Bradbury's Fahrenheit works better as a polemic than as a novel with ideas stated clearly the point of repetitiveness. True. One of those ideas was a disdain for television, which in the novel saps the intellect and creativity of all who watch. It's ironic then that television is the venue for this latest reimagining of his book and that this version adds flash by the pound. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so... Is the movie worth your time? The 1966 is... Yes. <laughs> fun for the afternoon matinee when you have nothing to do? I'm going to disagree with you again. The 1966 movie is awesome. The 2018, don't bother. I mean, you could watch it to see if you'll like it, but really don't no, bother. No, really don't. There's other things to watch. Like the 1966 version. Exactly. <laughs> on a lazy Sunday when you have nothing else to do. Or on your next date night when you're trying to figure out something to watch. Or just for, you know, any time, really. It's... I don't know. If it's your first date, that sounds like a vetting film. Which sounds like a great idea to me. Vet them early and fast, babe. Know what you're getting into. <laughs> if I was dating now on this time of COVID... I think we would be doing lots of Netflix Star Trek watches. <laughs> Star Trek and Buffy and, you know, if you're not into geeky sci-fi feminist shit, then I don't think we're going to work out. So, hey, hmm. there you go. That's our episode. Have you seen this movie? Why or why not? Why did you see this movie? If you've seen this movie, drop us an email at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com or visit our social media pages on Facebook. Let us hear your thoughts. You already are a supporter of the show, which is why you're getting to listen to this. So awesome again. And thank you again. Please remember to tell your friends and neighbors about how much you enjoy the show and how we agree with you that this movie was crap. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good night. Good day. Good afternoon. <laughs> what is it in Schumann Show? Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and good night. <laughs> in case I don't see you again later. And now, my interview with English teacher Sally in its entirety. Thank you again, Sally. Hi, I'm Sally. I'm a retired English teacher. I taught high school English for 27 years, and most of my career was spent with juniors, although I taught all grade levels, juniors was what I spent the most time with. Okay. And you taught Fahrenheit 451? I did. What is it like to teach 
Fahrenheit 451? It's, it's kind of interesting because it was easier in the 90s because it was still kind of futuristic in the 90s. And so kids were kind of interested in, oh, wow, they can just touch the door and it, you know, reads their fingerprints or whatever to open the door. And, wow, they have a TV that takes up the whole wall. And, and you know, it was still, that was still kind of new because at that time, I think the latest technology was, you know, a Walkman where you walked around with the big headphones and you had the little cassette tape you could put in your Walkman. And that's as close as portable music as you got. And then by, you know, 2012, 2013 or so, it was, it was kind of like, it was cheesy. And I, at that point, I wasn't teaching it. Like, everybody, we're all going to read this book. We had, um, for several years, I had a unit in the spring where I gave them a choice of like six or eight books. And they chose it. And then whoever else in that class was reading that book, they would get together and have discussions. And I, of course, was reading all the books along with them. And I would pop into the discussion groups from each book. And it was just, it was kind of laughable by that time that Bradbury predicted all this fascinating stuff would happen by the mid 24th century, I think. It's been a while. But you know, it was 500 years after the Civil War. So they thought it was kind of laughable that Bradbury thought all of this stuff would take 500 years to happen. And, you know, 60 years later, it, some of it was old technology. One of the things that I found interesting was the idea of books being symbols for thought depositories. It's not just the physical book. It's what the book symbolizes. But I was wondering if kids and I mean nowadays my kid borrows books from the library and then reads them on her computer screen and books are saved in the cloud like how that affects kids today thinking about books do you think that they got it that the it was more than just a book or do you think that they got hung up on the fact that it's all virtual and digital and stuff now right I think that slowed some of them down but they kind of the kids who enjoyed the book who chose to read it because they liked that genre. They kind of liked the idea of a human being being a book, you know, like I'm gonna memorize the Bible. And now I am the only copy of the Bible there is on earth. And I know it by heart. And some of them kind of found that to be a pretty interesting idea that, you know, that people would actually dedicate their lives to memorizing books and representing that that idea of that book but yeah again like you say it's like books are so accessible to us but fewer and fewer people read Mm -hmm. one of the things about this book being maybe about censorship depending on who you ask is that it has been challenged and attempted to be banned in a bunch of places some of the things that parents have been concerned of in the past is that it is filthy. It talks about adult themes. It uses bad language, etc. You taught it to juniors. Do you think that juniors are the right age group? Do you think that this book sh- could or should be read by younger, older? What do you What do you think about age group in terms of tone and subject matter? 
I, I think 16 and 17 year olds, especially today, have been exposed to so much language and sex and violence and stuff that it's not shocking to them. That's not hard for them. But I think also at this point, it almost takes an adult to appreciate the book just because, you know, somebody who can remember when we didn't have cell phones, somebody who can remember when the TV was a little box, you know, and I think, I think, I don't know if necessarily the younger kids are a better audience and adults are a better audience. I think it's one of those books that if you read it as a younger person, you would get something totally different out of it if you read it as an adult. I read it for the first time when I was probably 30. And I talked about it with my husband who had read it as an assigned book in junior high, and I think seventh grade. And we saw totally different things in the book. But then again, in seventh grade, it, he was in the seventh grade in the late 60s, and it was cool and futuristic and wow. And that's kind of like, a lot of what he got out of it was just the cool and futuristic and the sci-fi stuff. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was going to kind of ask you how you thought it aged. You kind of already spoke to that a little bit, but it is, it is weird to read it now. It's weird when you, like, I remember reading 1984 in 1994 because of right. when I read it, you know? <laughs> I, mean, like, I, I oh. taught it in 1990. <laughs> and, but yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of like one of the things that we would talk about in you know more current times with that book was you know the things that he predicted would exist in the future and how many of them exist how many of them we've gone beyond how many of them we don't have a need for you know it was it's kind of hard because you really have to put your mindset into this was written in 1950 i don't know 53 55 i don't really remember but you know he had to have Really, I guess that was the time of all the B sci-fi movies and spacemen and all that stuff. But it seems like he had to have a really good imagination to come up with some of the stuff he came up with. Oh yeah, for sure. The technology stuff, the Hound specifically. Yeah, a robot dog. Yeah, a scary robot dog. <laughs> oh yeah, evil robot dog. But you know, even then, even back then, the whole idea of I think it was helicopters at the end that were flying over with the lights searching for him. That was a foreign concept. Really? I mean, as far as in a city, yeah, they oh. did it in wartime and stuff. But as far as like police using helicopters, that didn't happen when I was a kid. How interesting. I've always grown up in a world where helicopters could fly over and at loudspeakers and stuff. I mean, I guess that that would have been way like you said, futuristic, but also very scary. Just another little component that added to the, the horror scariness of it that that part didn't scare me. I mean, like the, the adrenaline of is he going to escape was scary, but the actual things in the sky wasn't the scary part. That's freaking fascinating. Huh. See how much I'm learning from you? <laughs> well, and I, I'm having to dig back in memory pretty far. So. <laughs> it's a good brain exercise. There you go. Uh, those were all my questions. Do you have any other thoughts or impressions or things you feel strongly should be a part of the conversation? You know, something I had thought about years ago that I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting 
I mean, war is part of the book, technology is part of the book, censorship is part of the book, you know, the control of the people. I, I love the idea. Basically, my take on the theme of the book is stupid people are happy people. And it's true. Look around, it's true. But I, I just thinking about it, it's kind of interesting that the world as far as pollution and climate change. I mean, I realized climate change wasn't a thing in the 50s when he wrote it, but certainly the, the rise of industry and the growth of traffic and stuff like that is just not an issue. And I don't know, it seems like if I were writing a futuristic book, maybe because it just wasn't part of the conversation in the 50s, but I would have to think about, well, what kind of place environmentally is the world going to be? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. What is and what isn't there, you kind of almost have to acknowledge this is like, it's very, um, it's very white. I don't know how else to put it. Like there's like, there are people who are privileged enough that the wife literally just sits around and watches TV. She does not have a job. His job is a fireman and he does it they get their food from somewhere. They, you know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff. And then there's like this idea of the country where there's people actually raising food in farms. Those people aren't living full time in their parlors the way the people in the city are. So there is like this haves and have nots, but it's not really touched on, but it's, yeah. it's there a little bit, but it's like, I mean, and I guess I'm very sensitive to this right now because we're in a pandemic and we're talking a lot about essential workers and the farm workers in the field, you know, even when the air is poisoned, you know, who, who's at home during the day and who's not and our kids in school, whatever. Anyways, it's just, it really resonated. I was like, there's a whole part of the population that is not a part of this book. And you have to wonder like, do they just not exist for Bradbury or do they just not exist in this world? Or is it so homogenized that but it's not like there's not technology. It's not like everybody has a pill that they take for their food. Somebody's growing food. You know, someone's picking food. And I don't know. It was just it was interesting. That is that is interesting because that's just not how do how do I how do things arrive at my house is just not part of the, the story at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and that could be a product of Bradbury in the fifties writing in this, you know, in, in LA writing, you know, and um <laughs> and it could also just be, I mean, not to be super sexist here, but a lot of guys don't think about how stuff gets to my house, you know, <laughs> like, you know, the food's was, just there. <laughs> I was just thinking that it's like, it's very much from a male perspective. It's not like, you know, there's nothing about what, I think his wife is Millie. It's, it's, I mean, she watches TV all day and her girlfriends occasionally get together and watch TV together. And obviously they eat and stuff but it's like you're right it's like there's no thought about I, that's like the, the 1950s stereotypical male went to work the wife stayed home she didn't have a car she didn't have a job she probably didn't have a tv and when he got home he expected dinner on the table and the house clean and the kids you know neat and pressed and everything just to hum along and there was absolutely no thought given as to what anybody had to do to make that happen yeah it's interesting the only real domestic thing that i picked up in the book was um when they're they're eating toast at one point and it's a little right. machine that like pops the toast out and butters it and then plops it on his plate but and but that's and then and then the women have i think martinis i think is what they're drinking so but yeah it's 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 interesting. What is and what isn't there? And I, I, I mean, just to 
broaden this a little bit just for fun. Um, when I, I love sci-fi and fantasy, and part of it is world building, right? That's sometimes the best part is getting to inhabit these worlds. And there's there's like a whole subset of sci-fi fantasy which don't even bother to world build at all. They're like, nope, we're only going to give you this little bit of information. And sometimes that works really well because then you're really hyper-focused on the story. But sometimes it leaves you kind of going, ah, I need, I need more context because otherwise it's hard to imagine. It's hard to really put yourself there. I feel like this book kind of, for me personally, falls into that second category of like, I kind of want to know... I want to know that all the houses are fireproof. They say that like 17 times and then they go and burn houses. So like the houses aren't fireproof or are they only fireproof when they need to be fireproof? Like I just, do you know what I mean? Like that's a, I'm confused. Like who's in charge? Yeah, they're fireproof on the outside. But apparently if you go inside and pile up the, the hidden books and pour kerosene all over them, now the house isn't fireproof anymore. Right. And but then like they, they, it, like the ones that they burnt, like the whole house is destroyed. It's just, you know, rubble. So being fireproof on the other, I guess it only means that your neighbor's house isn't going to burn when we burn your house. But yeah, like just like the mechanic, I got stuck on that. The mechanics of what's burnable and not burnable. And then like, he's got a flamethrower and kerosene and, you know, so, and it, and there's still matches and the, the, um, the people out there in the road, the book people, have matches to, I don't know. It was, it was interesting. Anyways, thank you for this. This was fascinating and fun. You're welcome. It's kind of fun for me to think about that book. I haven't thought about it in a while.